Section 12 of Anton Chekhov and Other Essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anton Chekhov and Other Essays by Lev Shestov. Translated by John Middleton Murray and Samuel Kotalyansky. Section 12. The Theory of Knowledge, Part 2 truths proven and unproven etc whence did we get the habit of requiring proofs of each idea that is expressed if we put aside the consideration as having no real meaning in the present case that men do often purposely deceive their neighbors for gain or other interests then strictly speaking the necessity for proof is entirely removed it is true that we can still deceive ourselves and fall into involuntary error sometimes we take a vision for a reality and we wish to guard against that offensive mistake but as soon as the possibility of bona fide error is removed then we may relate simply without arguments judgments or references if you please believe if you don't don't and there is one province the very province which has always attracted to itself the most remarkable representatives of the human race where proofs in the general acceptation are even quite impossible we have hitherto taught that that which cannot be proved should not be spoken about still worse we have so arranged our language that strictly speaking everything we say is expressed in the form of a judgment that is in a form which presupposes not merely the possibility but the necessity of proofs perhaps this is the reason why metaphysics has been the object of incessant attack metaphysics evidently was not only unable to find a form of expression for her truths which would free her from the obligation of proof she did not even want to she considered herself the science par excellence and therefore supposed that she had more largely and more strictly to prove the judgments which she took under her wing she thought that if she were to neglect the duty of demonstration she would lose all her rights and that i imagine was her fatal mistake the correspondence of rights and duties is perhaps a cardinal truth or a cardinal fiction of the doctrine of law but it has been introduced into the sphere of philosophy by a misunderstanding here rather the contrary principle is enthroned rights are in inverse proportion to duties and only there where all duties have ceased is the greatest and most sovereign right acquired the right of communion with ultimate truths here we must not for one moment forget that ultimate truths have nothing in common with middle truths the logical construction of which we have so diligently studied for the last two thousand years the fundamental difference is that the ultimate truths are absolutely unintelligible unintelligible i repeat but not inaccessible it is true that middle truths also are strictly speaking unintelligible who will assert that he understands light heat pain pride joy degradation 
nevertheless our mind in alliance with omnipotent habit has with the assistance of some strained interpretation given to the combination of phenomena in the segment of universal life that is accessible to us a certain kind of harmony and unity and this from time immemorial has gained repute under the name of an intelligible explanation of the created world but the known which is the familiar world is sufficiently unintelligible to make good faith require of us that we should accept unintelligibility as the fundamental predicate of being it is impossible to hold as some do that the only reason why we do not understand the world is that something is hidden from us or that our mind is weak so that if the supreme being wished to unveil the secret of creation to us or if the human brain should so much develop in the next ten million years that he will excel us as far as we excel our official ancestor the ape then the world will be intelligible no 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 by their very essence the operations which we perform upon reality to understand it are useful and necessary only so long as they do not pass a certain limit it is impossible to understand the arrangement of a locomotive it is also legitimate to seek an explanation of an eclipse of the sun or of an earthquake but a moment comes only we cannot define it exactly when explanations lose all meaning and are good for nothing any more it is as though we were led by a rope the law of sufficient reason to a certain place and left there now go wherever you like and since we have grown so used to the rope in our lives we begin to believe that it is part of the very essence of the world one of the most remarkable thinkers spinoza thought that god himself was bound by necessity let anyone probe himself carefully and he will find that he is not merely unable to think but almost unable to live without the hypothesis of spinoza the work of hume who so brilliantly disputed the axiom of casual necessity was only half done he clearly showed that it is impossible to prove the existence of necessary connection but it is also impossible to prove the contrary in the result everything remained as before kant and all mankind after him has returned to spinoza's position freedom has been driven into an intellectual world and unknown land from whose bourn no traveller returns and everything is in the former place philosophy wants to be a science at all costs it is absolutely impossible for her to succeed in this but the price she has paid for the right to be called a science is not returned to her she has waived the right of seeking that which she needed wherever she would and she is deprived of the right forever but did she really need it if you glance at contemporary german philosophy you will say without hesitation that it was not needed at all neither by mistake nor even in pursuit of a new title did she renounce her great vocation it has become an intolerable burden to her however hard it may be to confess it is nevertheless indubitable that the great secrets of the universe cannot be manifested with the clarity and distinctness 
with which the visible and tangible world is open to us not only others you will not even convince yourself of your truth with the obviousness with which you can convince all men without exception of scientific truths revelations if they do occur are always revelations of an instant mohammed dostoevsky explains could only stay in paradise a very short time from half a second to five seconds even if he exceeded in falling into it and dostoevsky himself entered paradise only for an instant and here on earth both of them lived for years for tens of years and there seemed to be no end to the hell of earthly existence the hell was obvious demonstrable and it could be fixed exhibited ad oculus but how could paradise be proven how could one fix how express those half-seconds of paradisic beatitude which were from the outside manifested in ugly and horrible epileptic fits with convulsions paroxysms a foaming mouth and sometimes an ill-omened sudden fall with the spilling of blood again believe if you will if you won't don't surely a man who lives now in paradise now in hell sees life utterly differently from others and he wants to think that he is right that his experience is of great value that life is not at all as it is described by men of different experience and more limited emotions how desperately did dostoevsky desire to persuade all men of his righteousness how stubbornly he used to demonstrate and how angry he was made by the consciousness that lived in the depths of his soul that he was impotent to prove anything but a fact remains a fact perhaps epileptics and madmen know things of which normal men have not even the remotest presentiment but it is not vouchsafed to them to communicate their knowledge to others or to prove it and there is a universal knowledge which is the very object of philosophical seeking with which one may commune but which by its very essence cannot be communicated to all that is cannot be turned into verified and demonstrable universal truths to renounce this knowledge in order that philosophy should have the right to be called a science at times men acted thus there were sober epochs when the pursuit of positive knowledge absorbed every one capable of intellectual labor or perhaps there were epochs in which men who sought something other than positive science were condemned to universal contempt and passed unregarded in such an epoch plato would have found no sympathy but would have died in obscurity one thing at least is clear he whose chief interest and motive in life is in undemonstrable truths is doomed to complete or relative sterility in the sense in which the world is generally understood if he is clever and gifted men may perhaps be interested in his mind and talent but they will pass his work with indifference contempt and even horror and they will begin to warn the world against him 
look to him my children he is stern and pale and lean he is poor and naked and all men count him mean has not the work of the prophets who sought for ultimate truths been barren and useless did life hold them in any account life went its own way and the voices of the prophets have been are and ever will be voices in the wilderness for that which they see and know cannot be proved and is not capable of proof prophets have always been isolated dissevered separate helpless men locked up in their pride prophets are kings without an army for all their love to their subjects they can do nothing for them for subjects respect only those kings who possess a formidable military power and long may it be so the limits of reality after all not even the most consistent and convinced realist represents life to himself as it really is he overlooks a great deal and on the other hand he often sees something which has no existence in reality i do not think there is any need to show this by example for all our desire to be objective we are after all extremely subjective and those things which kant calls synthetic judgments a priori by which our mind forms nature and dictates laws to her do play a great and serious part in our lives we create something like the veil of maya we are awake in sleep and sleep in wakefulness exactly as though some magical power had charmed us and just as in sleep we feel for instance that what is happening to us is like a half dream an intermediate half-life schopenhauer and the buddhists were right in asserting that it is equally wrong to say of the veil of maya the world accessible to us either that it exists or does not exist it is true that logic does not admit such judgments and persecutes them most implacably for they violate its most fundamental laws but it cannot be helped when one has to choose between philosophy which is alluring and promising and empty logic one will always sacrifice the latter for the former and philosophy without contradictory judgments would be either doomed to eternal silence or would be churned into a mud of commonplace and reduced to nothing philosophers know that the same is true of our own case we must confess that we are at the same time awake and dreaming dreams and at times we must own that though we are alive yet we have long since been dead as living beings we still hold to the accepted synthetic judgments a priori and as dead we try to do without them and to replace them by other judgments which have nothing in common with the former but are even opposite to them philosophy is occupied in this work with extreme diligence and in this and this alone is the meaning of the idealistic movement which has never since the time of plato disappeared from history 
the problem is not for us to find another primordial better and eternal world to replace the visible world accessible to all as idealistic philosophy is usually interpreted by her official and unfortunately her most influential representatives interpretation of that kind too obviously bears the mark of its empiric utilitarian origin they bring us as near to super-empiric reality as do the notions wherewith we define what is valuable in life we might as well consider the super-empiric world as one of gold diamond or pearls simply because gold diamonds and pearls are very costly but so it usually happens god himself is usually presented as glimmering with gold and precious stones as omniscient and omnipotent he is called the king of kings since on earth the lot of a crowned head is considered most enviable the meaning and value of idealistic philosophy thus appears to be that she forever ratifies all that we have found valuable on earth during our brief existence herein i believe is a fatal error idealistic philosophy it is true gave an excuse for falsely interpreting her since she loved to be arrayed in sumptuous apparel the religion of almost all nations has always sought for forms outwardly beautiful without stopping even before such an obvious paradox not to put it more strongly as a golden cross studded with diamonds and for the sake of sumptuous words and golden crosses men overlook great truths and perhaps great possibilities the philosophy of the schools also loved to array herself so that she should not be behind the masters in this respect and for the sake of dress she often forgot her necessary work plato taught that our life was only a shadow of another reality if this is true and he discovered the truth then surely our first task is to begin to live a different life to turn our back to the wall above which the shadows are walking and to turn our face to the source of light which created the shadows or to those things of which the visible outlines give only a remote resemblance we must be awakened if only in part to this end what is usually done to a person sound asleep must be done to us he is pulled pinched beaten tickled and if all these things fail still stronger and more heroic measures must be applied at all events it is out of the question to advise contemplation which may well make one still sleepier or quietude which leads to the same result philosophy should live by sarcasm irony alarm struggles despairs and allow herself contemplation and quietude only from time to time as a relaxation then perhaps she will succeed in creating by the side of realistic dreams dreams of a quite different order and visibly demonstrate that the universally accepted dreams are not the only ones what is the use i do not think this question need be answered he who asks it shows by the fact that he needs neither an answer nor philosophy 
while he who needs them will not ask but will patiently await events a temperature of one hundred and twenty degrees an epileptic fit or something of this kind which facilitates the difficult task of seeking the given and the possible the law of causation as a principle of inquiry is an excellent thing the existing sciences afford us convincing evidence of that but an idea in the platonic sense is of little value at times at least the strict harmony and order of the world have fascinated many people such giants of thought as spinoza and goethe paused with reverent wonder in contemplation of the great and unchangeable order of nature therefore they exalted necessity even to the rank of a primordial eternal original principle and we must confess that goethe's and spinoza's conception of the world lives so much in each one of us that in most cases we can love and respect the world only when our souls feel in it a symmetrical harmony harmony seems to us at once the highest value and the ultimate truth it gives to the soul great place a stable firmness a trust in the creator the highest boons accessible to mortal men as the philosophers teach nevertheless there are other yearnings man's heart is suddenly possessed by a longing for the fantastic the unforeseen for that which cannot be foreseen the beautiful world loves its beauty peace of soul seems disgraceful stability is felt as an intolerable burden just as youth grown to manhood suddenly feels irritated by the bountiful tutelage of his parents from which he has received so much though he does not even know what to do with his freedom so is a man of insight ashamed of the happiness which is given to him which someone has created the law of causation like the whole harmony of the world seems to him a pleasant gift facilitating life but yet a degrading one he has sold his birthright for peace for undisturbed happiness his great birthright a free creation he does not understand how a giant like goethe could have been seduced by the temptation of a pleasant life he suspects the sincerity of spinoza there is something rotten in the state of denmark the apple of the tree of knowledge of good and evil has become to him the sole purpose of life even though the path to it should lie through extreme suffering and strangely nature herself seems to be preoccupied in urging man to that fatal path there comes a time in our life when some imperative and secret voice forbids us to rejoice at the beauty and grandeur of the world the world allures us as before but it no longer gives pure happiness remember chekhov how he loved nature what immeasurable yearning is audible in his wonderful descriptions of nature just as though each time that he glanced at the blue sky the troubled sea or the green woods a voice of authority whispered to him all this is yours no longer you may look at it but you have no right to rejoice prepare yourself for another life where nothing will be given complete 
prepared where nothing will be created where there will be illimitable creation alone and everything which is in this world shall be given to destruction to destruction and destruction even this nature which you so passionately love which it is hard and painful for you to renounce everything drives us to the mysterious realm of the eternally fantastic eternally chaotic and who knows it may be the eternally beautiful end of section twelve